3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone, wherever you're listening to us from, whether you're listening to us on 855 on your AM dial, whether you're listening to us over the um, WWWs, or if you're listening to us on a podcast in a week's time or a month's time or 10 years' time, good morning. In the studio today, we've got me, Sonia, we've got Grace, and we've got Michaela, who's helping us out with all the getting everything lined up and making sure we're actually on air. Um, we've got a full show for you this morning, as usual. Um, to begin with, we're going to be talking with Greg Barnes, SC, um, who is the chair of the Prisoners Legal Service in Tasmania. But he's coming us to us because he's an advisor to the Australian Assange campaign. There is a vigil going on for 24 hours outside the UK consulate today. Um, and so we're going to be finding out why and um, what the main issues are there. After that, we're celebrating Red Books Day. Now, those who listen regularly may remember we talked about this in the headlines last week. Today is a celebration of Karl Marx. It was an event started in India. And we're going to be having a discussion in the studio about some of Marx's writings. After that, we'll be speaking with Ange and Bayer from Rally Magazine about invisible illness and disability, followed by an update on camp sovereignty. And lastly, we'll have an interview by Andy and Cam from Yena Pasaran with Tarek Yunus on how Muslims are marginalised through colourblind pu- policies. Please stay tuned for all of that. Um, now on to the headlines. Thank you. New data from Consumer Group reveals four out of five shoppers find it hard to know whether markdowns at Coles and Woolworths represent value for money or savings. Of almost 11,000 shoppers surveyed, 88% of respondents said they were concerned about the cost of living crisis and the rising cost of groceries. Choice Senior Campaigns and Senior Policy Advisor B. Sherwood said, while the two major supermarkets each post over a billion dollars in profit, many households are still breaking point from the rising cost of food. In another victory for Palestine, the Water Transport Workers Federation of India decided to refuse to load or unload weapons heading to the Zionist entity or to allies for genocide in Palestine. The federation, which represents 3,500 workers at 11 major Indian ports, made this decision in response to a call by Palestinian trade unions, joining trade unions in Belgium and everywhere that are refusing to handle shipments to the Zionist entity. This decision highlights the growing global support for Palestine and resistance to Zionism, coming just days after Indian company Adani manufactured and sold over 20 oblique systems, 900 drones to the IOF. These drones were made in India after the Zionist oblique entered a joint venture with Indian Adani in 2018. It is worth noting that Adani also purchased 
the occupied port of port of Haifa for over a bill one billion dollars last year. Such moves make India a complicit partner in the genocide of Palestine. On less good news for Palestinians, the city of Melbourne has voted not to call for a ceasefire. Um, in Gaza overnight. So yesterday evening, there was a motion put by independent councillor Jamal Hakim, who proposed that the council back a motion asking the federal government to advocate for a list of seven demands. These included a permanent ceasefire, the release of all Israeli hostages and imprisoned Palestinians, and advocacy for an end to illegal Israeli settlements and the illegal occupation of Palestinian territories. Over 200 people gathered outside the meeting, urging councillors to pass the motion. But unfortunately, they decided, unlike their counterparts in Maribyrnong, Dandenong, Marybeck, Yarra, Hume, Darabin and Wyndham, that they would not support the call for a ceasefire. The protesters outside, over 200 people gathered outside the meeting, urging the councillors to pass the motion. Um, and they included, um, for example, a Jewish speaker called Tammy, who said that she and many others like her opposed the genocide in Gaza. She urged the, to support the motion without being afraid of being called anti-Semites. Um, also related to the previous headline, the ACTU has responded to a report by Professor Alan Fells on price gouging and unfair pricing practices. It'll come to no surprise to anybody who eats in Melbourne or elsewhere in Australia that supermarkets and a host of others have been using their market dominance and a host of dodgy practices to push up prices during a cost of living crisis. Um, Professor Alan Fell's report made 35 key recommendations and the union movement is now prioritising these reforms, that price gouging should be unlawful, that public ownership and universal provision of essential services should be um, included to address systemic market failures. The ACC should be allowed to name and shame businesses that overcharge. There should be a permanent prices commission which is separate from the ACCC, with the power to unilaterally examine high prices and pricing practices, that the ACC should be strengthened, that's the Australian Competition and Consumer Act, and that there should be laws to stop mega corporations consolidating. Um, Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, said that the privatisation of essential services has exacerbated the problem. So they, we call on all governments to abandon the failed privatisation project. Um, in other news completely, the community has been taking to the trees to save Wallum. So with bulldozers and chainsaws around the corner of the Wallum Biodiversity Hotspot, local residents have taken action to put their bodies in front of the impending destruction at the iconic coastal town of Brunswick Heads near Byron Bay. We might put more about that in the announcements at the end of the show. Thank you, Sonia. We are now going to hear the song Rosa Palestina by Pino Danielle. It's a song by the Italian musician and songwriter Pino Daniele, not to be confused with the Italian pro-Palestine song Ciao Bella, which has been widely associated with various social and political movements.
laggiù nel Medio Oriente come un bufalo ferito, il furia il pirata americano. Ma nei campi sulla luna sono armati anche i bambini, ogni donna in furia il suo fucile. No, non fan paura i carri armati di Israele, la tua terra tu la devi liberare. Abbiamo alzato il rosso, il verde, il bianco e il nero, stretta in pugno la bandiera, i colori di Arbatà. Abbiamo alzato la bandiera partigiana della rossa palestina, accanto a quella del Vietnam. Li chiamano banditi i giornali dei padroni, che chiamavano assassini partigiani. Noi non crederemo ai bollettini israeliani, al tiranno Giordano traditore. Quante volte ci hanno detto è finita in Palestina e ancora cantavamo la canzone. Abbiamo alzato il rosso, il verde, il bianco e il nero, stretta in pugno la bandiera, i colori di Alpata. Abbiamo alzato la bandiera partigiana della rossa Palestina, canto a quella del Vietnam. Al di là di questo mare c'è un popolo fratello, ogni lotta aiuta un'altra lotta. Ogni colpo sparato sul nemico sionista, in Italia colpisce chi comanda. Coi popoli in rivolta si muove oggi la storia. Rivoluzione fino alla vittoria Abbiamo alzato il rosso, il verde, il bianco e il nero Stretta in pugno la bandiera, i colori di Alfata Abbiamo alzato la bandiera partigiana della rossa palestina Canto a quella del Vietnam Join the National Sustainability Festival in 2024 for a huge program of events this February and March. Featuring visiting economist Stephanie Kelton in conversation about her best-selling book, The Deficit Myth, uncovering modern monetary theory and the critical role of deficit spending. Serving as chief economist on the US Senate Budget Committee and as senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders, Stephanie is flipping our understanding of the national debt and the nature of money upside down. For the full festival program and to book online, go to sustainabilityfestival.au. The National Sustainability Festival is a 3CR supporter. Celebrate all that unites us and host a Feast for Freedom this year. Cook delicious global recipes gifted by refugees and come together with your friends, family and community while raising vital funds for the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre. Register now at feastforfreedom.org.au. The Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is a 3CR supporter. And that was the song Rosa Palestina by Pino Danielle. It's known for its pro-Palestinian message. Pino Daniel was an influential Italian singer-songwriter and guitarist who often incorporated social and political themes into his music. 
We're joined this morning by Greg Barnes, SC, Chair of the Prisoners Legal Service in Tasmania and a patron of the Justice Reform Initiative. But he's joining us today as an advisor to the Australian Assange campaign. Thanks for making time, Greg. Hello? Are you there? Hello? Are you there, Greg? I am here. Oh, brilliant. Okay, we can now hear you there. Now, first of all, for listeners who haven't been following this case, could you give a brief outline of the main issues involved? Well, the main issues involved, of course, are that Julian Assange is being sought by the United States um, to face charges under the Espionage Act, um, and the allegations relate to the release in 2010 of material concerning uh, what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and the Commission of War Crimes by the United States. Now, of course, he's um, sought to resist that, um, and he's been in Belmarsh Prison in the UK for four years, and prior to that, of course, he was in the Ecuadorian Embassy. He's currently um, seeking what's called leave to appeal. In other words, uh, two judges in uh, the UK courts having a look at, at his arguments to see whether or not there's a reasonable prospect of success. Uh, And if they say, look, there is a reasonable prospect of success, then it'll go to a full hearing. And what what sentencing does he face if he was to be extradited and to face those charges? Well, effectively life he would get um, in excess of, could get in excess of 170 years. So effectively a life imprisonment. Um, Why is this a media freedom issue? It's a media freedom issue because it it relates to the right to publish material. And um, interestingly, uh, and very importantly, uh, the New York Times, which also published the same material in other newspapers, aren't being prosecuted by the United States because they have the First Amendment right. Um, Julian Assange should be in the same position. He's a a journalist. He's a publisher. Uh, And it's also fundamentally important, as we know, that uh, the, the lid is lifted on the activities of Australia and its allies, in this case the United States, in theatres of war. Um, what did Julian Assange reveal? He revealed war crimes. It's fundamentally important that we know that uh, uh, nations, how they behave in uh, the context of war. I was just going to ask why the information released was important. Um, what is our government, seeing as this case involves an Australian citizen, what's our government doing to protect Julian? Well, really virtually nothing except uh, uh, until Anthony Albanese got elected. Um, He's been very um, strong in the sense that he has said that uh, this matter needs to end. There was a strong parliamentary resolution last week, 86 MPs voting for a resolution calling on the United States to end the prosecution. Um, the matter has been raised with the Biden administration, but what needs to happen is that Mr Albanese and Penny Wong, the foreign minister, need to be saying to the United States, this is an alliance issue. You know, we've done everything you've asked of us in terms of submarines and AUKUS. We need this to happen. You know, the the vast majority of Australians say that Julian Assange uh, should be allowed to return to his family and come back to Australia. And, of course, there's a person at the heart of this. How's he doing? What's the impact of this incarceration having on him and his family? Well, it's having a huge uh, impact. It's having a huge impact on him. His mental and physical health continues to decline, uh, as one would expect in Belmarsh Prison, which are horrific conditions. Um, And, of course, there's the strain on his wife, Stella, and their two young children. So, you know, this, um, and, and of course, the prospect of spending the rest of your life in jail 
um, is extraordinarily stressful. And uh, you know, all of, when you combine all of these factors, um, it, it's essentially cruel to continue the pursuit of this matter. What do you think that the impact, if um, he is even just extradited, never mind if he's convicted, what do you think the impact of this would be on people's willingness to speak out about things like war crimes? Well, I think it impacts it. It particularly impacts on journalists like yourself and others because the United States is using its domestic law to go after someone who's, one, not a US citizen, two, did not go to the United States to publish this material. Um, so it Could you explain why effect. that's important? Well, it's important because it has a chilling effect then on, on journalists around the world and media organisations. If the United States can uh, extradite a person who, as I say, um, has no real connection with the US in terms of not being a citizen and not setting foot in the United States to publish this material, then who's next? You know, it could be a journalist in Australia, it could be a journalist in uh, the United Kingdom, you know, anywhere in the world who publishes this material could find themselves on the end of an extradition request by the United States and being charged. And, of course, some countries would be less able to stand up to the United States than Australia could. Yeah, that's right. And, um, I mean, you know, the hypocrisy of this is that, you know, the Australian government condemned China when it introduced a new security law in Hong Kong because it contained a provision that said that it could uh, seek to charge uh, people who are uh, criticising China, Chinese citizens who are criticising China and others who are criticising China, and the Australian government condemned that. The United States is doing exactly the same thing. And so would it have an impact upon people that criticise other foreign governments in Australia, potentially? Well, this is, you know, I mean, if the United States is doing what's to stop other countries saying, well, we'll join in. I mean, it sets a very, very dangerous precedent and it completely undermines, you know, the democratic values that the United States and Australia purport to uphold, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right of people to know what our government is doing. And could you talk a little bit more about what the, I mean, you mentioned the war crimes, could, because it happened such a long time ago. I think that some of our listeners may not be aware of just how explosive some of that material was that was released. Well, well one of them, of course, most famously or infamously was collateral murder, which is a video which shows uh, United States uh, soldiers um, uh, lining up and then uh, uh, shooting and, and killing uh, Iraqi citizens, including uh, uh, members of Reuters, the news agency. The collateral murder video, video is the most chilling example of uh, what was revealed. And, you know, what it reveals, of course, is war crimes, without a doubt. Yeah, and just to reiterate, it showed the um, the army killing journalists. Well, it shows, US, it, it shows a US helicopter. Yeah. Uh, it shows, and, and, and you've got the conversation with the soldiers talking about lining up the targets, and then there's the cold-blooded killing on the streets of Baghdad of uh, Reuters, uh, I think a Reuters uh, uh, journalist and photographer, certainly a photographer. I think about 12 people were killed and murdered, effectively. Now, what are the possible outcomes from the hearing today? Well, the possible outcomes... That, firstly, this is day one of the hearing, so it's another day. If the court does not give leave to Julian Assange to uh, pursue a full appeal, he could be put on a plane within hours and sent to the United States. His lawyers would seek to go to the European Court of Human Rights... Um, and but if they can't get there in time and the court doesn't um, stop
stay the proceedings, which means essentially put a hold on the proceedings until they hear it, that's what could happen. If he's successful in getting leave to appeal, then the matter will then go to a full hearing um, of a panel of judges in the UK uh, Court of Appeal uh, sometime later this year. And, and of course, if he wins that, um, he can walk out. Uh, If he loses that, uh, he can then seek again to go to the European court system. I think it's um, a bit ironic that the best outcome still sees him in prison for at least a few more months. Well, Um, that's right, exactly. And are there any fears for his safety were he to be extradited um, to the US? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, um, you know, the US's track record in relation to prisoners that it regards as high security is appalling. We know that uh, the United States uh, commits what's called cruel and unusual punishment, torture, for example, solitary confinement, leaving the light on in someone's cell 24-7, those sorts of uh, matters. I mean, that, that was done to Chelsea Manning, who, of course, was the... U.S. soldier, then Bradley Manning, who uh, provided the material, uh, much of the material that uh, Assange uh, released. Um, And, of course, uh, well, that was the finding against him. And, of course, got a 35-year sentence, which was commuted, and he was allowed to walk free towards the end of the Obama administration. Um, But, you know, they could kill him. I mean, we know that there was a plot by the CIA. This was revealed by Yahoo News. There was a plot by the CIA... Uh, to kill him uh, while he's uh, in the United Kingdom. And there is no doubt that he would face uh, appalling conditions in the US and could die. Now, um, could you tell us a bit about how the vigil has been going? The vigil started, I believe, at five o'clock yesterday evening? Well, yeah, I haven't been there because I'm in Hobart. I'll be in Melbourne later in the week. But, you know, these vigils uh, have been continuous uh, for a number of years now, and I think there's a heightened sense of the need to really ramp up vigils and protests around the world, including in Australia, because uh, this is an Australian citizen who is now getting to the pointy end, if you like, of legal proceedings, and there is so much at stake uh, in relation to this particular proceeding. Um. And is there anything else that our listeners should know or that they can do to help um, support Julian at this time? Well, one of the things that we've been encouraging, and it's been a very successful campaign, is to meet your MP. Um, We've had a number of meetings now with MPs around Australia, our supporters, um, and we've been able to convince some to support the Assange campaign, and that's why, of course, you've got those 86 votes in the parliament. So we would continue to urge people to go to their local MP uh, and seek meetings. Uh, Probably the best way to do it is to to get a group together uh, and seek a meeting with your local MP and go and see them and talk to them about the case. That's a very, very important step, and it's been very, very successful today. And just to check on that, um, is it any particular party that's been supportive of the... Well... Well, the Labor Party has been uh, in part supportive. Um, all of Nearly all of the independents have been supportive and, of course, the Greens have been resolute in their support. The Coalition, uh, Bridget Archer, um, uh, Russell Broadbent uh, and, uh, in fact, ironically, some National Party MPs like Matt Canavan, Barnaby Joyce, they've all been very supportive. Um, you know, in, in fact, the 42 MPs had voted against the resolution last week were coalition MPs. And the only reason they did so is because they didn't like the wording. But Dan Tien, uh, an opposition frontbencher, did say last week that the opposition wants to see this matter brought to a close as quickly as possible. So, yeah, 
know, in effect, you've got support across the political spectrum in Australia. I, I think that's one of the things that I found really striking was the, the widespread nature of that yeah. support. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today, Greg. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We've been talking with Greg Barnes, one of the lawyers um, who has been advising the Australian Assange campaign about the High Court hearing that's taking place in the UK um, over the course of today. Um, there's a great article on the timeline of events um, that ha- that Julian Assange has been facing on the conversation, if you want to check that out. And the vigil is happening until 5pm today outside the UK consulate at 90 Collins Street in the CBD. We are now going to hear the song Philistine Flow by Steph Riggs.
Hi, this is Anna Piper Scott, and you're listening to 3CR. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australian domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together and the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples. This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music, and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire in Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music... Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Hello, I'm Rory McLeod. I live in Scotland and I love radio. I can do the washing up, I could be in the garden, I could be in the car driving. Well, I'm listening to 3CR, Radical Radio, it's a subscription radio, community radio, on 8.55am. We do stream at 3cr.org.au. So you can become a member and donate money. And that was the track, Falestine Flow by Steph Riggs. Now, we're having a little bit of an experiment next on the show. We, it's Red Books Day today about reading and discussing Karl Marx's works. So we decided that we would just have a bit of a discussion and see how it goes. So what's going to happen is I'm going to read some quotes from Marx and then Grace and I will talk about what I've just read. So I'm going to start off with a quote from Capital, which starts with, Labour is... In the first place, a process in which both man and nature participate and which man of his own accord starts, regulates and controls the material reactions between himself and nature. By thus acting on the external world and changing it, he at the same time changes his own nature. 
he develops his slumbering powers and compels them to act in obedience to his sway. It's a good one. I feel really uncomfortable about it. That's why it's good. (laughs) It's like quite far away from, I think, how we are trying to interact with nature these days Um, and the attitude of taking and using um uh, which is yeah kind of kind of a big part of why we're in a climate crisis I'd say yeah I feel it's very sort of like it could almost be Francis Bacon who talks about the rape of nature and the need to subdue and that I feel that it it fits in with that sort of category of yeah materialism um and it's not really that surprising if we look at the ways in which um, left-wing governments have ignored the environment, certainly through most of the 20th century. I think mm. it was a big gap in the thinking there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It also seems like a very um, traditionally if you, masculine-valued way of looking at the world. It is masculine. Did it just say man? It, it? it just talks yeah. about man. See, I mean yeah. That, yeah, and man and nature his own accord. That's the old talk, isn't it? Mm. And it also um, seems really individualist to me. Yeah, it is. And it's pretty capitalist also. Um, yeah, it is about the taking mm. and not not that reciprocal relationship or that care for land. And, um, yeah. It does at least point out that um, the let's talk about the person, um, will change their nature as a result of interaction with the world. But yeah. it, doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily seem to be, it seems to be about increasing their power and their um, capacity to further subdue things rather than... Yeah, and still getting something out of the interaction, which is still, yeah, not, not that... You mean yeah. sort of extractive? Yeah, extract, it's extractive. Yeah. yeah. Shall we move on to another quote? Let's do it. This is also from Capital. Wherever a part of society possesses a monopoly of the means of production, the worker, free or unfree, must add to the labour necessary for his own maintenance an extra quality of labour in order to produce the means of subsistence for the owner of the means of production. Mm. I think this is really... Um, important in relation to the price price gouging thing. So basically, we're, the workers are working for themselves and for the owner, whereas the owner's not working for anybody. Yeah, which is exactly like what we're talking about with with Coles and Woolworths and those big big supermarkets. Um, even though it reminds me of their their sort of charade around um invasion day with um i think it was Woolworths that banned um yeah any like australia day paraphernalia it didn't really ban it it just realized that it wasn't going to make a profit out of it yeah true true decided not to sell it yeah which is it's not it's not about you know it's not a moral decision um it's it's like you know the way they're thinking is is about money it is about profits and that's why it's it's interesting it's really Mm. interesting that 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 consensus that it's that it's a day of mourning is spreading. That's what yeah. that kind of indicates to me. Is it's yeah. less. It is kind of becoming less popular. Um, 
People are literally not buying into it. Yeah, and corporations are noticing and then capitalising on that. like yeah. <laughs> To make themselves out to be the good guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I Also, going back to the quote, I also think that it re- this one's good at reminding us that it's not the frontline workers. It's not the people who are actually taking the money for the groceries. It's not the people producing the groceries. It's not the farmers who are benefiting from the system mm-hmm. most of the time. It's the banks and it's the owners of the big supermarket chains. Yeah. They're the ones that really own all the things going all the way down the chain. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. Let's go on to another one. Um, this is from the second book of Capital. The last cause of all real crises always remains the poverty and restricted consumption of the masses as compared to the tendency of capitalist production to develop the productive forces in such a way that only the absolute power of consumption of the entire society would be their limit. Mm. I, I, I think that that one's really good at showing a light on why there is this relentless drive to consumerism yeah we we as consumers are fueling our own poverty in some ways because we are buying into their ability to expand their own um ownership and profit profiteering yeah and stuck in that that loop i guess that poverty loop it's not yeah yeah it's that we we are yeah we're we're also being told we need to buy things and being told that we can't do things for ourselves a lot of the time as well because if you can if you have to buy something in rather than doing it yourself then you're part of the big capitalist machinery but if you do something yourself yeah and you're kind of dependent on that system and that's Mm. the hard thing is that some people that's the relationship when when you become dependent on on those goods and services you're yeah stuck in it yeah and and I think that the poverty here isn't just about the um poverty of lack of material resources but the time poverty yeah is a really big one as well which I don't think is explicit or possibly even thought about that but time poverty is a really big thing too absolutely especially as women yeah absolutely yeah right I think that's all we've got time for on that but I really enjoyed that we might try it again with different topics in future let's see um we're now going to go to a song um so Red Books Day started off in India so we thought that it would be appropriate to go to an Indian song which brings together protest and patriotism in one number. It's called, and forgive me for my pronunciation here, it's a huge name, Dohatan Ai Duniawalan Hindustan Humara Hai by Kismet. It's from 1943. Thank you. 
हमने ललकारा है आसमान की चोटी से फिर हमने ललकारा है दूर हटो दूर हटो दूर हटो है दुनिया वालों हिंदुस्तान हमारा है दूर हटो है दुनिया वालों हिंदुस्तान हमारा है That was Dulhatan I Duniawalan Hindustan Humara Hai, possibly one of the most unique song choices we've had on this show. Um, it came closely on the heels of the Quit India movement of 1942 and was by lyricist Kavi Pradeep. It was directed towards the British, though he cleverly marked his protest. And our next segment is a conversation I had over the weekend with Anjan Bayer who are the co-founders of Rally Magazine. Rally Magazine is a multimedia magazine on a mission to expand empathy and create social change. We spoke about their first issue, the invisible illness and disability issue, and the interview starts off with me asking Ange and Bayer to describe what Rally Mag is. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and on 3cr.org.au slash streaming. Rally is a multimedia magazine um, that uses print, digital and social media to kind of bridge the gap between storytelling and activism. So each issue, we focus on a different topic, one that we feel uh, might have been left out of mainstream media, something that's been overlooked or maybe misunderstood. We'll commission diverse creatives to create pieces like essays, videos, playlists, kind of whatever format we think is the most engaging and accessible for the story that we're trying to tell. 
Um, the idea is that, you know, we actually stay with this story for a bit longer so that we can fully unpack its nuances and engage people with wherever they're at in understanding that topic. And kind of most importantly, each issue we partner with a relevant not-for-profit or community group that is doing important work in that space. So the idea is that we have a clear call to action for our audience um, so that they, like, once they've finished reading the stories that we're telling and hopefully care more about the topic that we're actually talking about, they have something meaningful and tangible that they can do that's going to hopefully bring about a positive change. Yeah, that's great. And is that why you landed on the title um, rally for, for the mag? The call to action element <laughs> it is yeah like we it's funny like there's so many things that we sat and we talked about for so yeah. long before we we're able to make a decision about something but rally did come to us quite naturally and it is that almost bringing together and i think it's like you know rally may cover so many different topics and so many i have different audiences or different groups of people that we're speaking to but rally it's like the idea of all of these groups coming together yeah um to bring about a positive change Fantastic. I think it did stick out in that way too. I saw Rally and I was like, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be good. Did you decide on doing a multimedia magazine for a particular reason? We both come from multimedia backgrounds. We've always worked with videos, graphic designs, writing, illustration. It's sort of always been our bread and butter. Um, so we knew that we wanted to use the skills that we had um in this magazine as a whole yeah. um but the second to that I guess if we think back to the purpose of rally which is to create a more accessible way for people to access um a topic mm-hmm. multimedia became that way of increasing accessibility yeah. for us and I think personally when I read and watched the magazine the videos were very accessible for me with someone with an energy deficient illness um you know just lying in bed and being able to play those videos and hear um community speak to me in a way it's kind of chilling and sometimes reading yeah is, is a bit too much and I think yeah for so many other reasons to other other people multimedia is seems like a really great way to explore disability and was there a particular moment where you decided that uh you were going to do do this magazine and um, focus on invisible illness. I feel like they happened at two separate times. It's deciding like, you know, there's a bit of a, there was some time between when we actually decided to start Riley Magazine and then the time that we actually spent starting the first issue. Yeah, I guess like the idea of actually putting Riley together, well, that the initial idea sat with me for a really long time. Um, I probably, you know, since I was a teenager, I've been obsessed with magazines and I knew I wanted to make one for myself. Um, back in the day, you know, like there was Dolly and Girlfriend or All the Rage. And I thought that the format was always so great with its many listicles and kind of like, I don't know, short form pieces. It really good way at captivating an audience but they they just weren't covering enough and I craved more from them um they're there's such a, a narrow focus on what topics were covered or what we were allowed to talk about or whatever and you know, as Bea was mentioning it was like through studying I was learning more about digital storytelling and obviously the media landscape was shifting to 
more online uh, and I was kind of just bridging those those kind of gaps together I started to have this very clear vision in my head of a landing page with a video trailer to really engage people with the content that we were making I started drawing wireframes of the website and like the back of my notebook while I was in class and sat with that for a while um and then in 2020 obviously we all have more time in our hands and I thought you know just why couldn't we start this now um and that was when I approached Bayer with the original idea and it kind of started to grow and evolve and take shape from then. And like we did, we did spend so much time talking, like finessing, like what the different, what our key principles were. And it's like, okay, we want to make change, but how are we going to effectively make change and all that sort of thing. Um, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of thinking behind the scenes before we actually kind of put pen to paper and started making the magazine. One of the things that stuck out for me when I saw first came across Rally Mag was the focus on empathy. I think I saw in the Instagram bio there was a mention mm -hmm. of, of that being the core principle of Rally magazine. Yeah. Why do you think it's important to kind of expand empathy towards disabled communities? The the concept of Rally was born, I guess, from it's a bit of like a fight against increasing political apathy that we could really like feel amongst our peers. Um, and I guess it was clear to us that the reason why it can sometimes feel really difficult to, um, I guess, be moved towards political action is because we may not have gone through that journey of expanding our empathy for others outside of like our immediate community. I guess it's why like if a topic hits really close to home, it's so much easier to be involved with political action that surrounds that topic. Um, so then when we think about marginalized communities and especially disabled communities, um, we've always had this like lack of rich, full storytelling in mainstream media. Um, so it's no wonder that the level of empathy the general public has for these communities can often also be a lot lower. Um, and then I guess when we were looking at topics um, around this community, we, I guess, know that 90% of people with disability in Australia have invisible disabilities. So it's kind of ironic because, um, you know, you may think that you don't have anyone in your community with a disability, but actually you probably very likely do. You just may not know it. You may not be able to see it and see the full extent of how it impacts um, their lives. So really that's why it's so important to be telling these stories because it's a crucial way um, to make these like isolating and quote unquote invisible experiences um, more visible for everybody. Absolutely. And I think people often need to see, to believe, or even in this case, you know, hearing, hearing these stories from a community that's been kept out of the mainstream media for such a long period of time. There's a great article talking about autism representation. It's just so important to have something like Rally Mag that's, that's sharing all those stories so so broadly and such a broad spectrum of them. One yeah. um, comment that, that stuck out in one of the videos was this culture does not support chronic illness and does not understand chronic illness. It's sort of like why I think, you know, that that's touching on like why we started Riley, but not so much even like why we end, like picked this theme or this topic, which is probably worth um, mentioning as well. Because, you know, as we were working out um, what we wanted to do with Riley, it was like, okay, so how do we decide what topic 
um, we wanted to do first. And we came to that knowing like some of our team members did have lived experience on this topic. And at least for myself, like at the time we started working really together, it did coincide um, with what I was going through personally. Um, I have been living with chronic pain since I was 19 years old, but it wasn't until 2020 that I discovered that my condition was in fact, you know, something I was going to be living with for what seems like now the rest of my life. Um, and actually I read this amazing book by Kylie Maslin, Show Me Where It Hurts, and it, it helped me to understand and use the term disability for myself. Um, and there was so much learning and unlearning that I was doing at that time that it felt like the perfect topic for our first issue because there was so much to unpack and suddenly it did lend itself so well to what we we're actually trying to do with this magazine. And I've been friends with Ange for so long and as she was going through that journey as someone with like an like as an able-bodied person and allies like hearing about that journey there was so many conversations that the two of us had with and you know trying to communicate to me what it was like my questions to her making her understand why sometimes it's hard to see or understand mm. like for example like what pain is if you've never experienced chronic pain all you have is a measure of acute pain which is so profoundly different mm-hmm. so even like those conversations we were having yeah. shaped what we understood as like the 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 topics that would make this yeah overall story the most accessible whether you have lived experience or not yeah it was almost it became like what was the 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 best way to tell the story was almost because we had someone that had like lived experience and someone without it was like oh okay these are the gaps in our understanding like this mm. is how we can figure out what we need to unpack further um and found that that actually worked really well yeah like I guess through conversation these sections kind of just came to us a little bit we realized that there was a bit of a journey that a reader kind of can be led on to towards that deeper understanding of the topic so our first section communication has like easier to digest pieces and um it really just works to show readers that people with invisible illness and disability exist all around them Um, And I guess like once you can accept and see and believe that, then you're sort of ready to talk about the systems involved um, that kind of create disability as a concept um, and also the political intersections that have to go with that. So, you know, we start having pieces that introduce concepts like ableism, um, but it also has topics that talk to how racism, colonialism, sexism also play a crucial role when we talk about disability justice. Um, And then our third section, solutions, um, becomes an important section to ask readers to learn and look for solutions. So whether that's from a micro level, what can they do themselves for the people around them to that real macro level, like what kind of policies and systemic changes are we hoping to really push to make um, like the lives of everyone better really. Um, And it acts as a bit of a springboard. So we have a read, watch, listen, act section that really just says, go beyond this issue. This is hopefully for some, the start of what is going to be learning and unlearning for the rest of your life. <laughs> Absolutely. And it, it, I think it, that progression worked really well because it did two things. I think if you hadn't, if you didn't know anybody or, you know, don't with a chronic, chronic illness or a disability, then you really, it's likely you've got no idea about these, these systems that, that have a mm. large impact on people's lives. And I think also dictate people's lives 
that's yeah. one that is quite scary about being disabled is often, you know, you're you're rocking up to an appointment where a doctor might be making a huge decision about um, mm-hmm. whether or not you're receiving a certain care or a procedure that's going to happen on, on your body. Another comment I really liked was one of the contributors talking about money and its relationship to access. And if you don't have money, you you might not have access. Absolutely. And then like to have money has so much in that. Like, do you have money from generations of wealth because, you know, you're white (laughs) or are you an Indigenous person and you are still experiencing the impact of colonialism and how are you meant to access that wealth? How did you go about picking or kind of connecting the contributors for this issue? Yeah, I mean, that was, like, honestly one of the best parts of putting this magazine together. (laughs) It was very rewarding. I mean, I got to reach out to so many creatives who I just genuinely admired and asked them if they wanted to contribute to a little magazine, and so many actually said yes. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of pinch-me moments. Yeah, (laughs) Um, you know, and, like, I was starting to just be even more of these spaces anyway because of what I was going through and and so much of what is part of that in kind of invisible illness and and disability experiences that you spend a lot of time in your uh, online and and communicating with other people that are going through similar things that you're going through so there's lots of like Facebook groups and Instagram groups that are just a really good way of connecting with other people so I was just um yeah being more um actively involved in those spaces at that time anyway and coming and from being in those groups um it's just discovering so many incredible people whose work I just was like yes we need to feature um but you know a lot of them are doing so many creative things as well so mm. um it was really from, from a lot of it was from that or you know just yeah reading other things that we were coming across and and consistently just being like oh my god they said yes <laughs> Yeah, when I became ill, I didn't know any other disabled people. My sister mm-hmm. has a chronic illness too, so so that was lovely to, to connect with her. But finding community, particularly when, you know, we have to spend a lot of time or inside rooms and at home for various reasons is, is so important, for me at least. Changed a lot of things, yeah. Does it just, it makes you feel seen I don't know I like at that particular time anyway it was just like I felt so isolated in in what I was experiencing within my own friends like my friends were all doing these very normal things like going about their work lives and I was just like oh like I'm actually not sure if I can work oh I actually spend most of my time in like the doctor's office and and my peers are not going through this and that that in itself is such an isolating experience and I was just like and I personally I'm not very good at like talking about you know my own experiences to other people and I was like am I the only person feeling this way and I think having those communities and those groups online just became so much more important even just sharing things as like a little meme that only like, you know, these group of people can understand um, just felt so important. And I think that also helped us connect the dots of like why mm-hmm. we wanted to tell this story as well. Cause it was just like what's happening online is, is so important and so interesting. And then the more people you speak to, it was almost like from starting this issue that I discovered there were other people in my life that actually were going through these similar things, but a lot of it isn't talked about. So yeah, but there's lots, there's lots of part of that that whole journey. It would be a massive like game changer. I know you had a launch as well. Um, what's the, what was the sentiment from from people who had had stumbled across Rally Mag? 
Yeah, I mean, like we we had a bit of a soft launch at the end of last year, and I think like just now we're probably we did like um have a little bit of a rest for ourselves um over the end of last year because it was kind of a mammoth effort <laughs> just putting this thing together. Um, but it has been incredible. Like I don't know, I just feel like it's been incredible the response mm-hmm. that it's gotten so far, and we haven't heavily started promoting it. So I think that's going to be what's really exciting for us next is to like actually get the feedback from other people that are reading and engaging with the magazine. Do you want to share with our listeners what they can do to support Rally Mag or to have access to it? You can visit our website, rallymagazine.com.au, so you can actually experience the full issue digitally for free. You can also now purchase a copy of the mag in print as a way to support us a little, or if it's just your preference for how to consume content, then go for it. Um, And you can also follow us on Instagram at rally.mag. We're going to start posting week on week um, and sharing all the stories that are covered in the issue. So you can follow along there. And that was a chat I had with Anjan Bayer from Rally Magazine. We spoke about their first issue, the invisible illness and disability issue, and about disability culture and how Rally Magazine was produced. We're now going to have a few announcements about Camp Sovereignty and what's going on down there for the next week. So um, 22nd, so that's tomorrow. Sorry, I'm just catching up on these dates. Um, At 6pm, Turkish imperialism and land theft of Armenia and Kurdistan. And then at 9pm, there's going to be screenings in memory of Uncle Kev. Saturday is... There's going to be a photography in politically charged environments workshop at 1 p.m. and then 3 p.m. Sovereign Sounds. And Sunday, um, the free Palestine rally as usual at the State Library at 12 p.m. And we're now going to have the song, um, song by Julia Botros, who is a Lebanese Christian singer. The name of the song... Um, Where are the millions? There we go, Sonia. Thank you. All right, we're going to go into the song just now.
tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. It is language that's under pressure. It's the best words in the best order. I write because I want us to join hands together. It would seem wholly unsatisfying to be a human unless there were these moments where we feel something. Spoken Word, your connection to grassroots story and poetry community, every Thursday at 9am on 3CR. The song before those announcements was Where Are the Millions? The lyrics to that go, Where are the millions? Where are the Arab youth? Where is the Arab fury? Where is the blood of the Arabs? Where is the honour of the Arabs? Where are the millions? And the song was performed at the Melbourne Palestine rally last weekend by Asil Taya. Uh, you can follow Asil on Instagram. Next, we're going to an interview by Andy and Cam from Yenar Pasaran, who spoke with Tarek Yunus. Tarek is a cultural and critical clinical psychologist and currently a lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University. His previous research explored the racialization of Muslims as a result of statutory counter-terrorism policies in mental health. They've written on Western Muslim identities, Islamophobia, the securitization and racism of mental health, and how Muslims are increasingly marginalized through colorblind policies which don't target them explicitly. Tarek teaches on the impact of culture, religion, globalisation and security policies on mental health interventions. Let's go to that interview now. I'm a senior lecturer at Middlesex University, which is true. Although I'm actually only working there now part-time, my other part-time is working as racial justice researcher at this really great organisation called Healing Justice London. We're looking at processes of marginalization. It's an organization that's dedicated to transformative healing justice. Tarek, we'll start off with a really easy one. There's quite a lot of funding going into counter-extremism, so this should be easy to answer. What is extremism? What is extremism? So that's obviously the golden question that's ironically not on me to answer. My interest in extremism isn't really about how I define extremism, but rather how Various nation states have defined extremism for their own purposes. We'll find that extremism is defined in many different ways. And while obviously most generically in the beginning of the war on terror, it was obviously centered very much on expressions of Muslimness that many countries across the global north and Australia and other places didn't like to hear. I think often now in the evolution of the war on terror, extremism has come to define anything that's sort of what's considered sort of illiberal and on the fringes of society, which what we've seen could be anything that they would like. I mean, here in the UK, they'll say anything that's sort of anti-democratic or intolerant, but in reality kind of is, again, really whatever any country wants it to be. For my personal interest in extremism, I think, isn't necessarily it's whatever definition they're trying, anyone is trying to that it is, but rather my interest in extremism comes in its colorblindness. So what began as something that focused counter-extremism, having focused particularly on Muslims, became something that's more or less colorblind to give, give it this liberal veneer of acceptability that it applies equally 
across the population, despite what we're seeing is a growing trend towards normalization of all right politics, xenophobia, racism, et cetera. A lot of these things obviously don't end up being caught within the web of counter extremes. One major focus of the book, obviously, is this thing called the Muslim mind, which apparently presents particular problems to governments in the global north. You develop a kind of a thesis about the relationship between psychological understandings and the role of politics. Can you explain what it is that you find troubling about this process of psychologization that's this process that's taking place that locates whatever problems are assumed to exist inside the minds of this thing called the Muslim? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's also kind of the, that was like the impetus behind me wanting to write this book. So when I speak, the whole, I think the idea of psychologization, I should just preface this by saying it's nothing new. It's actually also nothing new in terms of like counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency. If we think about sort of colonial projects that have long looked at colonial subjects in terms of that sense of revolt that developed among colonized populations, Hans van Aron and others have looked at this. And so empires have been very quick to psychologize that anger, that frustration of of actually being colonial subjects as being one that belongs cities to the minds of those people, right? Like there are people who have difficulties in controlling their anger, their emotional configuration, their cognitive configuration is all sort of messed up. So it's a way of saying, well, actually the problem isn't really us. Like it's not the colonial project. It's actually them that's in their minds, right? So there, there's a long sort of trajectory that this is building on. So given that history, that's something that what we're seeing in our current time, why psychologization is so important for me. I think, let me just add another point, which is I think there's a lot of sort of been questions around the politics of like Muslims and Islamophobia, right? So this is something that many people have been writing upon. Yes, Morsi, for example, which I think you both know, have written about this for a very long time. But there's also the politics of psychology. I think people tend to think of the side disciplines, which I include in psychology, psychiatry, as these as these apolitical phenomena, right? Like that they're somehow devoid of any politics or any sort of yeah, sort of any sort of political uh, uh, valence in their in their work. And this is something that's been long critiqued, given our neoliberal structures and other things. That psychology plays a very obvious political role. The purpose of the book was to really just marry the two. So the politics of psychology and the politics of Muslim. So theoretically, I think it's actually, the argument is really easy to explain, which is what I just said. Psychology has a very convenient way of making, of individualizing. It has this impulse to individualize issues and make it about people rather than structures, right? So if People are, are living through a cost of living crisis and they're anxious, they're distressed because of it. There is this impulse to be like, oh, maybe everybody needs a therapist. Everybody needs a mental health professional. Everybody's feeling anxious and depressed, right? So there is already that impulse. It has this very, almost also very conservative, very individualizing impulse. And that impulse to try to, this impulse to 
localized experiences within the mind is one that's that depoliticizes it. and this is this is sort of the central argument that's been made towards or a central critique that's made towards psychologization that's the big that's sort of the big sort of umbrella argument the re, the, the ways that this applies to muslims is actually very very clear in counterterrorism and counter extremism policies so i can give maybe an example that i think will hopefully clarify and it's an example i draw upon in my book which is the fact that one thing we notice in counter-extremism policies that try to give the liberal veneer that it's not about Muslims or managing ideal Muslim citizenry, so to speak, is about making it, they say that it's about everybody, right? Counter-extremism is about everybody. And one of the ways they're able to do this is saying that, well, everybody can be psychologically vulnerable to ideological viruses, right? Using the sort of psychology talk, as I, as I call it, or it's language is heavily emphasizing psychology. We can all, you, yourselves, me, anybody around me, we're all equally vulnerable to becoming terrorists in the future if we're psychologically vulnerable, right? And so that discourse of psychology and mental health becomes one kind of equalizing the, the playing field making it seem like we can take a public health approach to counter-extremism, to counter-terrorism, that applies to everyone equally. Even though, and this is, this is the central point here, even though the very construct of terrorism, the very construct of extremism, both in politics and policies, as well as public consciousness, is highly, highly racialized to Muslims. So it be, this sort of psychology talk and psychologization effectively does is that it actually gives this colorblind veneer towards racist policies that are racist in, in practice. On paper, it seems like it's a question of safeguarding. It seems like it's a question of trying to help people. Look, we're trying to help everybody in the population. We're taking this public health approach that's trying to save everybody. We don't want anybody to go down the, the road of the far right. We also don't want anybody to become an Islamist. Like it's, It makes it seem like it's, it's benevolent, it's protective. But it's really just effectively colorblinding, very racist politics, which were racist from the outset and are not. It's raised the racism of the war on terror and becomes a race in the process. And I can give some examples to this. Please do. Okay, that sounds good. So one example that I find was very interesting. I'll give two examples. I mean, one example is here, the prevent policy, which for non-UK listeners is the UK. The UK has a very unique counter-extremism, counter-radicalization policy across Western uh, white majority nations insofar as it's a public duty for public institutions, be it healthcare, schools, universities, etc., to train their staff to have what they call due regard in identifying and reporting individuals they suspect might become terrorists in the future, or as they like to call it, vulnerable to radicalization. So basically, all teachers, all healthcare staff here receive training to report, identify and report individuals they suspect through their gut feelings that are be like, oh, I think this person might become is susceptible to becoming a terrorist in the future. Which I think for anyone who's not in the UK is like, whoa, that's like really problematic. And it is because many people, including UN Special Rapporteurs and 
charities, NGOs, uh, Muslim civil society, everyone has called out the racism uh, of this uh, quite extensively. My interest was looking at how psychology is sort of instrumentalized in this pursuit. And obviously, one thing that becomes very clear if you go to prevent training, and unfortunately, part of my research has to go through it many times, really to my own, to like to my own demise, because I really, really hated every time I had to go through it, is like this heavily psychologized language. Again, it's couched in this in in this in this talk of benevolence, like, oh, look out for people who are vulnerable, someone who's sad, who's lonely, might be vulnerable to radicalization. And the example I actually like to give is in one of the trainings I went to, which was a training to train trainers to go train their own institutions, right? So the training I I'm talking about right now is where everyone else in the room is supposed to go back to their respective institutions and train others in counter extremism. And the trainer said one of the signs of vulnerability towards potential radicalization might be an adolescent, for example, who suddenly gains a lot of confidence or loses a lot of confidence. And I'm just sitting there in the room, right? And I'm just looking around what was obviously the most ridiculous thing that anybody can say. Right. Because I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, adolescence gaining or losing confidence. Right. Like even just the idea is so stupid. And I tried in my research, I try to have, especially in the trainings, I try to have a fly on the wall approach. So I try to always not say anything because for me, it's interesting just to see how these ideas then sort of reverberate in the room itself and how people react to it. So no one said anything. I had to then raise my hand and I said, well, actually, what do you mean with that? Try to be as nice as possible because it was the most ridiculous thing anyone could say. I just offered to say that, hey, don't all adolescents kind of always gain and lose confidence? Like, isn't that what adolescence literally is about? And other people start nodding and agreeing. And the trainer then said, well, yeah, that's true. The whole point is to trust your gut feeling, right? So the idea that they're really trying to institutionalize and responsibilize was that you, you're responsible for that gut feeling you have that, hey, something might be wrong, right? But it's couched under this highly psychologized veneer. What it's really trying to do is responsibilize people to feel that every time they feel something is wrong, to report it to the, what, what's effectively the police. And so that's one example of how this plays out. And I think Obviously, what we know about that gut feeling, I'm just going to put it out there in case listeners are aware of like long-standing research right now on Islamophobia is that in public consciousness, extremism and terrorism, again, is highly ra- racialized to Muslimness and signifiers of Muslimness. So we see people being referred for growing a beard, for practicing suddenly, for converting to Islam. We see all of these triggering these gut feelings all the time. In fact, I have one personal example. I didn't write about this and I didn't publish on it. I have many personal examples that I don't write and publish on, but I don't mind sharing just sort of generically like this, is that it's so racialized to to Muslimness and so much so that I know of a case example where someone was referred to prevent for counter-extremism because they were coming from Syria, even though it turned out after the fact that that person wasn't even Muslim, right? So they were coming from Syria as a... as a as an asylum seeker, but they weren't even Muslim at the end of the day, right? Like they were. So this person who was Arab was racialized Muslim. We know that's how it works. We know people are attacked on the street because they are racialized 
as Muslims, even though they're actually Sikh, uh, or they could be Coptic Egyptian Christians or other things like that. So that speaks to sort of the fluidity of how racialization operates, but it's very, very revealing to that almost immediate connection between uh, the war of terror and Muslims. That was Tarek Yunus, a cultural and critical clinical psychologist and currently a lecturer in psychology at Middlesex University. He te they teach on the impact of culture, religion, globalization and security policies on mental health interventions. And you can listen to Yena Pasaran on Thursdays from 4.30 to 5 p.m. We're now going to go to some announcements of events coming up. Poets for Palestine at the Grace Darling Hotel from 7pm is on tonight and it's free entry. Um, this is a quote from the organisers. Join us in solidarity for a special poetry showcase of Arab and allied voices united, turning poetry into power for those in Palestine. Then today, Bunjil's Fire will be streaming live from Camp Sovereignty from 11am to 2pm. Listen in at 3cr.org.au slash streaming. And Restore UNRWA Funding Export Aid, Not Arms, is happening on Friday at 4.30pm at the Department of Foreign Affairs. Meanwhile, the community has also been holding a 24-7 picket protest outside Anthony Albanese's office since 5pm on Sunday the 11th of February. Lots of people have been showing up daily, providing supplies, doing admin work and staying overnight. And the coronial inquest into the death of Josh Kerr is ongoing at the coroner's court, um, and that's going until Friday. So each day the court runs from 10 till 4 p.m., and there's a smoking ceremony every day at 9 a.m. So, yeah, if you can go down and, and show support for Josh's family and their community, you can also join the court online or yeah, and listen to the recordings as they're, as they're happening. So that's live. Um, through the link on Dajwa Foundation's Instagram, which is D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A space foundation. Sorry, is that underscore foundation? Underscore. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. So um, today's that's about it for today's show. We're just going to wrap up. The last piece that you heard was from Andy and Cam on Yena Pasran interviewing Tariq Yunus, um, partly on how Muslims are marginalised through colourblind policies. Um, before that, we had an update on what's happening this week at Camp Sovereignty. Um, previous to that, Grace spoke with Ange and Bea from Rally Magazine about invisible illness and disability, which will be Rally Magazine's first issue. Grace and I had a fun chat um, about Marx prior to that, just reading out some quotes and discussing them for Red Books Day. And our first piece this morning was an interview with Greg Barnes, SC, um, who is an advisor to the Australian Assange campaign. Uh, there is a vigil going on for the Assange campaign until 5pm today outside the UK consulate at 90 Collins Street in the CBD. So head along to that if you're itching for something meaningful to do today. Coming up next will be the Stick Together show, but that's all from us at Wednesday Breakfast today. It is. Thank you. Before we go, we're going to hear the song Order by Jala, who's a local NAM-based um, artist. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. 
You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. All this world. Just to do 